Go ahead and you grab your Bibles and open them up to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 3. We are going to be concluding our look at Deuteronomy chapter 3 today. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 29 is what we will be exploring this morning. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah. And lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people. And he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When it comes to the Old Testament, there isn't a man or a prophet that I admire and strive to learn from more than I do Moses. Moses is one that we learn today who laid down his blood, who laid down his sweat, who laid down his tears and died without ever entering into everything that he fought for. He didn't get to enter into Canaan, but it was the next generation that got to enter into Canaan under Joshua. Joshua was a man who benefited from the lifetime of labor that Moses worked in Israel. We also learn in Moses' life That he didn't really finish well. A lifetime of work is remembered at this end when he struck a rock twice rather than listen to the word of the Lord. But if you look at Moses, you can see him from a number of different ways, right? You can see a man who ran a long, faithful race for a lifetime. There's a number of different facets that you could look at Moses from. But when you read Scripture, you understand that Moses is a man that Scripture describes as, in Numbers 12, 3, very meek. In fact, it says, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. In other words, Moses was the meekest man on planet earth at this time. This is the man whose epitaph reads in Deuteronomy chapter 34, there has not risen a prophet Since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was a man of seemingly superhuman ability and superhuman patience. 
steadily, tirelessly, tenaciously, and constantly interceding and mediating for a people who on more than a few occasions rose up against him to insult him, to slander him, to accuse him, to try and replace him, to try and displace him. And they even at certain points picked up stones to kill him. But almost every time, Moses responded by pleading with them, please obey the Lord, hear his word, do what he commands. And then he would also hold up those very people with stones in their hands ready to kill him. He would hold them up to the Lord and pray for them on their behalf. He would pray for this very people who had provoked the anger of the Lord. He prayed for this very people who, if he had not prayed for them, the text tells us the Lord would have consumed them in a moment. However, even with all of these excellent qualities, Moses was a human. Moses is a person. Moses has limits to his humility, limits to his meekness, limits to his patience. See, Israel sometimes forgot that Moses was a human being. You can kind of see that today in many ways, right? Assemblies and congregations and missionary uh, organizations forget that the people who are on the field or the people that are leading the churches or the elders, you forget they're human beings, with limits to their patience and limits to their abilities. And we see that Moses had a limit. And we see the moment his limits were reached. We see that moment when he spoke and acted rashly from a bitter spirit. And we see the penalty for his actions, which was to be barred from entry into Canaan, the promised land. And it led him in our text this morning to beg with beg God, to plead with the Lord, reconsider, please let me go in, please let me see. I've only begun to see your work. I've seen you capture uh, Sihon and uh, Og on this side of the Jordan, but please, I've only begun to see, let me go to the other side. Please bring me into Canaan, please, please, please. And the Lord said, enough, enough, you will not go. So what happened? How did a lifetime of faithful ministry and service get to this point where Moses was not able to enter into Canaan? How did this Moses, a man unlike any other in the nation of Israel, forfeit his place in Canaan? Much to his tremendous sorrow. Well, let's take a step back and we'll look at the wider picture. See, over the years, I have in conversation with many people who profess to be Christians, heard people defend what they believe to be their small, inconsequential sin and errors by saying things like, I don't think the Lord is all too concerned with my small decisions and my choices. I'm just one person. And how do my personal acts and my my little lies and my little choices actually contribute to the wider scheme of things? Doesn't God have much bigger fish to fry? Doesn't he have bigger issues to tend to, bigger sins to take care of, actual sinners to deal with, right? Doesn't the Lord have to focus on, you know, those billionaires across the world who are keeping people poor? Doesn't the Lord have to deal with those people who are mobilizing armies to go to war and innocents being killed? 
Doesn't God have to deal with, or should, isn't he focused more, uh, more clearly on those nations that are promoting wickedness among their people? It's always something or someone else, right? It's always something or someone else the Lord is concerned about. And what we are doing, we, our hearts, our deceitful hearts can fool us into thinking, it's not really that big of a deal, right? Sure, I lie, but what is that in the grand scheme? The government deserves my lies. I need my tax money for myself. Sure, I'm bitter and angry, and I'm holding a grudge against a fellow brother, but you don't know what they did to me. God understands. Jesus and I, we've got our own deal going. He understands me. I remember when I was a kid... There was an old country song that used to blare in my house all, of the, all the time. And the lyrics are burned into my head because they irritate me so bad. I like the guy who sings it, but the song irritates me to no end. And the lyrics that I heard blared through the house are, are these. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. That's a lie! None of us have our own thing going with Jesus if that own thing means I am able to do things what, that the scripture tells me I'm not supposed to do. The sustained, insistent, relentless witness of the scriptures is this. The living God is a holy God. He is a holy God who takes all things seriously. He takes large things seriously. He takes small things seriously. And we cannot fully grasp the degree to which even the most private and seemingly inconsequential sins drive the Lord to furious vengeance. The scriptural witness is that He, the Lord, is to be by all who claim to be His children by grace through faith in Christ... He is to be upheld as holy in the eyes of all the people. That's the reason Moses was not able to enter into Canaan. That's what the Lord told him. You did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. That goes for all of us. It goes for the big sinners. It goes for the seemingly little sinners. It goes for the leaders and the teachers over and among the people of God. It goes for your pastors. It goes for your missionaries. It goes for you. It goes for all of us. Goes for those teachers who James tells us will be judged with a greater strictness, but it also goes for all of you who claim to love him and serve him. Because you are, and I am, whether we like it or not, every one of us who claims the name of Jesus is an ambassador and a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world, whether we're in the Amazon or whether we're in Winona. Which means. That whatever you do in and with your life, whether it's in private or whether it's in public, that affects your ambassadorship. The songs you sing, the clothes you wear, the words you speak, whether they're truthful, deceitful, or slanderous, the things that you search on the internet, whatever it is that's going through your head, all of it, all of it affects your ambassadorship. And so each one of us, 
every single one of us, in every area of our lives, must be always striving by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us to uphold the holiness of God before the eyes of the people in all areas of our lives, whether those are areas in our lives that people can't see or areas that they can. You and I must keep ourselves from violating the commandment. Deuteronomy 5.11, you shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. While you and I, or while we, have whittled that command down to using his excellent and precious name in an unworthy manner, we tend to look at that and say, that means don't use his name as a swear or a cuss word, which it does encapsulate or incorporate. This command is so much more expansive than that. This command speaks to every single one of us who professes to love and serve Jesus Christ, who professes Jesus Christ as Lord, but then pollute his name and his reputation in the world by our words and our deeds. This speaks to everyone who says, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but doesn't concern themselves with actually living seriously as the Apostle Peter describes his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, because that's what the Apostle Peter tells us that we are. This command not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain is a warning to all who would rather live in the world as a child of the world while claiming the name of Jesus than live as a child of Jesus as a light to the world. living holy, obedient lives, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you might think to yourself, well, are there examples of the Lord taking sin that seriously? Examples of the Lord's fury with those who do not seriously take care to live and uphold him as holy in the eyes of the world are numerous. They're throughout the scriptures even when they seem to be rather light, it's very clear that the repercussions of disobedience are, for those who are disobedient and aren't truly saved, horrendous. I want you to think about three examples. Go back all the way to Eden. And the Lord told Adam and Eve in the garden, Look at all those trees! There's a ton of them out there. Enjoy the fruit from every single one of them. All of them. Except one. That one right there. That one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from that one because in the day that you eat of that one, you will die. But every other tree, I'm a generous and I'm a good God. Every other tree is yours. Adam and Eve, however, what did they choose to do? They chose to set their eyes on the one tree that the Lord had forbidden them. They walked up to it. Eve saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked good to eat. So she took some and she gave it to her husband and both of them took a little bit of the fruit. That's it. They consumed a little bit of fruit. And what happened? They were barred from the garden 
And you and I are in a, a relentless battle with our flesh because sin entered the world as a result. Just a little bit of fruit, right? Consider also the priests in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. Sons of Aaron the priest who went into the tabernacle thinking, I am a priest. I can offer up to the Lord anything I want just like any other priest could. And so they brought a tiny little piece of incense to the altar and they offered it up. The text calls it unauthorized or strange fire, Leviticus 10.1, which the Lord had not commanded them. They offered up a teeny little smoking ember in the tabernacle or in the house of the Lord. That's it. A teeny little piece of ember, ember with a little bit of smoke coming from it. The Lord had not authorized it. The Lord had not said they could do it. They took it upon themselves. They didn't take the Lord's command seriously. They did not uphold him as holy. And guess what happened to these two? The text tells us in Leviticus 10.2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And why? Because, Leviticus 10.3, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Does it sound like the Lord takes his holiness and his glory seriously? Yes, it does. A third example, King Saul. After being anointed king over Israel, he was commanded by the Lord to destroy King Amalek. And he was told in 1 Samuel 15, 3, listen to this. He said, he was told, go, and this is the Lord speaking to him, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul went to war. He knew the command of God. He knew exactly what God was commanding him to do. And in 1 Samuel 15, 8, it says this, Saul went to war and he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Agag is the king of Amalek. And the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and lambs and all that was good. And he would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Now, as a modern reader of the text, you might look at that text and say, wow, King Saul's actually quite a humanitarian here. He didn't kill all those sheep and all those oxen, and he left King Agag alive. That seems to be like a, a real humanitarian decision. But did the Lord see it that way? Saul disobeyed the clear and express command of the Lord. Think whatever you will of it, Saul disobeyed the clear express command of the Lord. And so the response of the Lord to Saul was this. The Lord rejected Saul from being king over Israel. Are you telling me that, the, that Saul was rejected because he saved some sheep? When God had commanded him to kill them all. Are we starting to see the seriousness with which God takes his commandments? The prophet Samuel went to Saul and said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. All of these actions, as small as they might seem, eating some fruit, offering some incense, and saving some sheep, 
They all met with the holy anger of the Lord. And why? Because each one of them is an act of disobedience to the clear express command of the Lord. They did not do as the Lord had commanded in the way that the Lord had commanded them to do it as he had commanded them to do it. And so they were barred from Eden, consumed by his holy fire, and rejected as king over his people. A little bit of incense, a little apple, or a little fruit, sorry, and the saving of some sheep. And as we will see, Moses too violated the command of the Lord. And it seems like it's, he's only recorded as doing it once. And even such a man as Moses must face the grievous consequences for his violation. He must face barring from Canaan because he streak, struck the rock rather than speaking to it. Now, the events leading up to Moses' disobedience are recorded for us in Numbers chapter 20. But before we read them, let's just have a little bit of background. So we know, based on what we've just discussed, that the Lord is holy, and he takes every single word that he speaks in command very seriously, much more seriously than you and I can grasp or understand. And so you've got Moses in Numbers 20. This is the background to Deuteronomy chapter 3, our text for this morning. He's talking, Moses there is talking about the fact that he wasn't allowed into Canaan, and here's the reason why he wasn't allowed into Canaan. A little background, but before we get there, a little background to help us maybe get a sense of why Moses exploded on this day. A little sense of everything Moses had endured and experienced up to that point. Let's go all the way back to their exit from, from Egypt. After the Lord had led Israel out from bondage and enslavement in Egypt by the hand of Moses, the nation crossed through the Red Sea and they came to camp at the foot of Mount Sinai, or as Deuteronomy calls it, Mount Horeb. They're two titles for the same mountain. And there the people spent about 11 months camped around Sinai. And during these 11 months, the Lord organized the nation of Israel into a nation. There was a census of the fighting men taken, and 600,000 of them were, were numbered. During this 11 months, the tabernacle was constructed. During these 11 months, the 12 tribes were arranged in their positions around the tabernacle, positions that they would consistently take up whenever they moved throughout the wilderness. The Levites were ordained as the priests, and their duties were outlined. And three families of the Levites, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites, were selected and appointed as those to care for the music and the utensils and the service in the tabernacle. And after all of this, the glory of the Lord came to rest on the tabernacle. And after this 11-month organizational period, the people were then commanded by the Lord, you stayed here long enough, it's time to get moving to Canaan. And so they started moving by stages toward the land of Canaan. And as soon as they left the base of the mountain, it didn't even take a day. As soon as they left what must have been comfortable confines around Sinai, the people started complaining. And for the next 38 years of wandering, over and over again, they murmured and complained about their situation. The people fussed and griped and protested about their situation, about what they considered misfortune, and about Moses' leadership. But the Lord told Moses, listen Moses, they're not complaining about your oversight. They're complaining about mine. 
Moses, you are simply the spokesman that I have tasked with telling them the things I have said. Moses, you are the mediator between them and me. You are my representative to them. You are my ambassador to the people of Israel. And so now when the people are leaving Sinai, they are now faced with the harsh and brutal realities of traveling through a barren and foreboding wilderness. And for the first time, as the people get a little bit thirsty, they lose their minds. And immediately they begin whining about what they saw as their misfortunes. Numbers 11.1 tells us the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. But what did Moses do? Moses, the man who loved his people, prayed to the Lord on behalf and the fires of God's judgment died down. And not too long after that, a group of what our, the Numbers 11 calls rabble, they had a craving for meat. And so they grumbled about it to anyone who would listen. Wish I had meat, wish I had a nice burger, wish I had something going on here. And again, the thankless ingratitude of the people provoked the anger of the Lord so that it blazed hotly against them, Numbers 11.10. And what did Moses do? Moses again interceded on behalf of the people and stayed the hand of the Lord. Again, not that long after, the people rose up against Moses. This time, the Lord had put his spirit on 70 elders, and the elders began prophesying. But there were two men who stayed in the camp, and they were prophesying in the camp. And this worried Joshua. Joshua feared for the position and the authority and the reputation of Moses, and so he ran over to Moses, and he said, there's two men prophesying in the camp. You should tell them to stop. But listen to Moses' response in Numbers eleven twenty nine. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of God's people be, were prophets, so that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. See, Moses was not proud, he was not arrogant. He wasn't about protecting his own status or role or insulating himself in a role that he knew was given to him by God. He was not protectionist or competitive. I wish everybody was a prophet. I wish everybody had the same relationship with God that I do. I wish God would speak to everybody the way he speaks to me. Oh, that would be amazing. So he was not concerned with the work of the Lord being limited to himself and keeping other ministries at bay. But the people, it seems, hearing this humility, getting wind of this fact that Moses lacked a protectionistic attitude toward his role, they seized upon it. And they used this to come up against Moses and speak against him. And they tried to annex and pounce on the positions of leadership for themselves. And this, doesn't, this wasn't just any old people. This was Aaron. Aaron was Moses' close ministry partner and confidant. And it was Miriam, Moses' very own sister. It was these two who tried to annex his leadership position. And the Lord responded to their betrayal by punishing them for their impudence 
And what did Moses do? Did he remain angry with them? No, he cried out to the Lord for their healing and forgiveness. The very people who had assembled against him, he cried out to the Lord again for their healing and their forgiveness. Once again, Moses displayed his meekness and his humility by such intercession. Then after that, Moses said, okay, it's time to send out spies to the land of Canaan to check it out. And so the spies went, and they checked out the land, and the twelve returned, but only two of them, Caleb and Joshua, gave a faithful and courageous report to the people. We can do this. Let's go up. Let's obey the word of the Lord. We can go up. We can fight. We can conquer the land. The peoples of the land, yes, they are pretty large. And the walls... Yes, they are high and fortified, but guess what, Israel? We have the Lord on our side. He is going ahead of us. He is fighting for us. They are nothing but bread for us. We are going to eat them alive. The win is already guaranteed. How can we lose if God is going ahead of us? How can you lose if God is going ahead of you? Those five tribes, they're all going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. God has already gone ahead of you, and he's fighting for you. The win is guaranteed. Let's go. But behind those two came ten others who gave a bad and faithless report, a report that was saturated with and dripping with fear and discouragement. And the general populace, instead of listening to Caleb and Joshua, they listened to the ten faithless spies, and they rebelled against Moses. They planned out. They went so far as to plan out a return to their enslavement in Egypt. And they, they picked up stones. They were so committed to returning to their enslavement that they picked up stones and they were going to kill Moses, Caleb, and Joshua so that they can establish a new leader and go back to Egypt. And the Lord in his anger once again was provoked with the people of Israel. And he said this to Moses in Numbers 14, 12. I'm going to strike them down with pestilence and I'm going to disinherit them. I will make of you, Moses a nation greater and mightier than they. Do you hear the offer that was just made to Moses? This is the same people that have assembled themselves against him, that have harassed him, insulted him, sought to kill him. They've tried to take his leadership position, and here's the Lord saying, you know what, Moses? I'm going to get rid of all of them, and we're going to start with you. What kind of temptation would that be when you've got a nation of people that seemingly hate you? Moses, let's start this all over again with you. But again, look at Moses. He interceded for his people as a whole in response. And in response to Moses' prayer, the Lord didn't disinherit the whole batch of them. But he did swear that the current faithful generation, faithless generation would all die in the wilderness for their faithlessness and for their rebellion, for their refusal to obey him in spite of everything the Lord had done so awesomely and visibly before their own eyes. And so now they must wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the last of that generation dies. They were on the borders of Canaan, and now they must go back into the wilderness and wander. And during those wilderness wandering years, Yet more groups rose up against Moses. This time the sons of Korah. 
the family that had been tasked with caring for and overseeing the holy utensils in the tabernacle. They were not content with their precious and meaningful task. They thought it beneath them. They wanted more. They were not happy to be limited to this service. And so they, along with 250 others, 250 other well-known, well-respected men in Israel, they all assembled before Moses and Aaron and objected to Moses and Aaron's role as leaders over the people. They said this in number 16.3. You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? But if only they could see, right? Moses had never exalted himself above the people. At every turn, Moses has been praying for them, weeping for them, interceding for them, begging the Lord to bless them, begging the Lord to spare them. Moses is the reason that they are still alive. But even with that being the case, Moses could not escape the accusations and the slanders of a rebellious people. The accusation was, you are trying to exalt yourself over us, Moses. And you could just imagine Moses' heart dropping in his chest. All I have done is tried to work amongst this people to see them obey the Lord and live. Moses is the model servant, the picture of meekness. And they thought this man was power hungry. And Moses looked at them and replied, I would imagine his face had a, a, a high degree of sorrow in it, and said, are you not content with the area of service that God has so graciously blessed you with? Don't you realize, Levites, that you've been tasked with the priestly service of the, in the tabernacle? You would be jealous for my role? You have no idea what this role entails. I tried to tell the Lord I didn't want it. And you would be jealous for my role? You stand before the congregation of Israel and you minister to them. Is that too small and menial a task for you? Would you want every single other role along with your own? Israel, wherever the Lord has called and gifted you to serve, it is a precious and valuable service. Do it well for the glory of the Lord. And know this, Israel... It's not me, Moses, that ascribes to anyone their gifts or their skills or their positions. That's the Lord's work. So be careful and consider this. Who am I? Who is Moses? Who is Aaron? We are nothing. Who are we that you would come against us? It's not us you're angry with. It is the good and wise will and dispensation of the Lord who commissions all of his people to serve him faithfully in numerous different areas, all of which are tremendously important. It's not against me that you've come and complained, said Moses in number 1611. It is against the Lord that you've come to complain. And the Lord's anger was once again kindled by the people who would not recognize and be content with their place and their role, but who, jealous of Moses, rose up against him, and the Lord was again, number 16, 21, about to consume all of them in a moment. The ground opened up, if you remember, and consumed those 215 men, 250 men. And what did Moses do? He intercedes for them. And you'd think maybe they would learn from their mistakes this time. But no, the very next day, 
Not even 24 hours later, the people grumble against Moses again, assembling before him, and they said, you killed the people of the Lord, Moses. Now, if you're Moses here, you're probably able to bear this because the Lord is with you. And you're hoping and praying that all of these are heading somewhere. All of these events and all of these assemblies and all of these disobediences, you're hoping that they're heading somewhere. You're looking down the hallway and thinking, we're moving in that direction. We're going somewhere. This people is going to be holy and they're learning from their mistakes. They're going to grow in their obedience to the Lord. And if you have that hope, yes, you can bear up. You can keep moving. But it must be getting more difficult for Moses. So they assembled against Moses again. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the very next day in Numbers 1645, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And what did Moses do again? Again, Moses fell on his face as a plague fell from the Lord upon the people. And Moses said, Aaron, quick, hurry, go and make atonement for the people. And Aaron ran in the midst of the people, holding the incense to appease the wrath. And he stopped the death count at 14,700. Over and over again, do you see what kind of man Moses continually proves to be? An almost superhuman figure, a man with a degree of patience and humility unknown, it seems, to any human being not named Jesus. And even so, in a moment of anger, when his patience finally gave way to fury with the people, even Moses forfeits his spot in Canaan. I hope you're starting to understand the, the final lesson that's being moved at, toward here. By not following the clear instruction of the Lord as he'd always done up to this moment. Every time before Numbers chapter 20, the Lord spoke and Moses did as the Lord commanded or said what the Lord had told him to say. But this time he sins in bitterness with the people, failing to stand firm, failing to uphold the Lord as holy in the sight of the people. And how did he do this? He did this by striking a rock instead of speaking to it. And why would he strike a rock instead of speaking to it? Why? If you see a pattern consistently uh, displayed in scripture, the Lord said, so Moses said the Lord commanded so Moses did and then all of a sudden the Lord commanded and Moses did something different that is meant to jolt you and so in Numbers 20 we have once again the people assembling themselves before Moses and Aaron and this is years after their departure from Egypt and they're quarreling with them once again and they say this in Numbers chapter 20 verses 3 to 5 Oh, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Meaning the 250 people that had just been swallowed up and the plague and the 14,700 that had just been killed by the plague. Why have you brought us the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there is no water to drink. Do you know what the people are describing here? They're describing the promised land. They're wondering why the wilderness isn't the promised land. Why are we not in the promised land enjoying the figs and the vines and the pomegranates and the cold, refreshing waters from the springs like you had told us we would be? And why is it? It's because they had rebelled against the Lord, not Moses. They did. 
And yet here they are blaming it all on Moses. Why are we here, Moses? Why did you bring us here to this place with no comfort and no amenities? Why didn't you just let the Lord kill us like he did our brothers when the ground swallowed them up and the plague of the Lord fell? Why did you send Aaron in the middle to appease? Would have been better for us to just die. And what makes Moses so bitter and angry is that I believe in this moment he lost hope. Because this is not the first time that they quarreled with him about water in the desert. Just after their departure from Egypt, we read this in Exodus 17. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord in Exodus 17, and the Lord said to him in Exodus 17, 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And you see, on that occasion, as the Lord stood on the rock, he told him, Strike it. So Moses struck it, and water came out. And now, all these years later, after all these assemblies against him, after all the quarreling, after all the lessons that Moses has hoped the people would learn, the very reason and foundation for his hope to continue on working with them, it seems like the people have not learned a thing. Just imagine Moses watching this all play out, thinking to himself, these are the same complaints the people had in the days just after we left Egypt. It's the same thing. Why did you bring us here? We're thirsty. Are you trying to kill our livestock and our children? Oh, that we had stayed in Egypt, or oh, that we had died over their, the exact things for which the Lord had already proven faithful to provide. And here's the key. Imagine Moses in that moment. Could it really be? Could it really be that after all this effort and all this prayer and all this intercession and all this labor and all this instruction, all the weeping, all the prayer, all the traveling, all the teaching, all the bearing with this nation that we really find ourselves not having moved past the lessons that we were supposed to have learned on day one? Are we really so dull that we have lived so long in this wilderness and we have not learned anything? What has my leadership been all about? After all this, the people forget and repeat that same faithless complaining and grumbling the minute they don't get what they want when they want. The minute something doesn't go around, the minute something around them doesn't go as they'd like it, Perhaps you can empathize with Moses as he hears the broken record, as he hears them repeat on day 10,000 the same words they, were, they said on day one. The hope for a leader is the growth of those they lead into the things of the Lord. And it seems like in this moment, Moses must, it must have evaporated in that moment. As he listened to the same complaints decades later, revealing that after all his labors... The people have not moved one inch. They have not grown at all. And here they are complaining, and anger begins to well up in his spirit as his hope is gone. 
And the Lord said in response to this second grumbling of the people about lack of water in Numbers 20, verse 8, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. But now, for the first time in Moses' recorded life, he did not do exactly as the Lord had told him. The Lord said, take the staff, gather the people, speak to the rock. But Moses, in his anger, said this in Numbers 20, verses 10 to 11. Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out from this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Moses here had breached faith. It's not that he didn't believe in the Lord's power or doubt the power of the Lord to provide. It's that he didn't do exactly what the Lord had commanded him to do, precisely as the Lord had commanded him to do it. His anger led him to violate the commandment of the Lord. And so Moses, the leader who will be judged in a stricter manner, because his sin at this moment, because he is the ambassador of the Lord to Israel, is just as serious as any sin Israel had committed up to this point, is now barred from the promised land. For striking the rock, in anger, rather than speaking to it as the Lord had commanded, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Numbers 20, verse 12, Because you did not believe in me, meaning, stand firm in your obedience to my word. That's what that phrase means. Because you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses you failed to publicly uphold my sanctity and my holiness in the eyes of the people. Moses, you failed to represent me in the manner that I had called for. What ought to have been a moment for me to display my continuing gracious and merciful, merciful provision for my people to a people so undeserving of it, you turned it into a display of your anger. And you turn the people's eyes to yourself as you unloaded your anger in front of them and struck the rock. It's one thing to be angry. It's another thing to sin in that anger. And for Moses to be God's representative and fail to uphold the glory of God because he's angry, to turn people's attention from the Lord unto himself because he can't control his rage, was a terrible, terrible sin. This is why the Apostle Paul will so seriously exhort us in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. See, it's not about you, Moses. This is about my holiness, said the Lord. So for Moses, this was a momentary but very serious lapse in judgment. And Moses will make it clear the Lord was angry with me because of you. Three times in Deuteronomy. That's how Moses presents this narrative. It's not that Moses is passing the buck, but he's letting the people know by way of warning that it's because Israel was faithless in the previous generation that they didn't enter into the promised land sooner. Because if they had, guess what? The quarreling for water in the wilderness wouldn't have taken place a second time because they would have been living in the promised land. 
Your faithlessness, Israel, gave rise to this occasion. But Moses is responsible for his own sin. And so for you, be warned, right? See the consequences of faithlessness and rebellion. See how far-reaching they are. You don't know what your decisions today will mean decades from now. You don't know what your rebellion today might mean decades from now. They might mean the fall of a godly leader. They might mean the breaking of a family chain of faithful service. For Moses, it meant he wouldn't enter Canaan. Because you see, one of the things you learn from the Moses and Israel story is that leaders among the people of God, along with the people of God, they, are, they form and are bound together in a sort of symbiotic relationship, right? Leaders suffer at the hands of rebellious, slanderous people, and people suffer at the hands of faithless leaders. But leaders lead well under, with faithful people, and faithful people inspires leaders to lead well. That's why he, uh, the writer of the Hebrews would say, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And listen to this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, leaders and, and peoples are advantageous to one another. And Moses here, fighting for so long with an unruly people, ended up failing to reach Canaan. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote to the Corinthian believers and said, I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He understood that as he's writing letters to churches like Corinth that are just constantly at each other, not listening to his the, the commands of the Lord that are given through him, that are constantly failing to be unified, that are bitter and hostile, he must keep his own spirit in check. But all of this led to the moment when Moses pleaded with the Lord in Deuteronomy, when he said in chapter 3, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. And here we see, right, because of one sin. And as I read, read the commentaries on this text, one of the, the, the questions that are constantly repeated are, why would God mete out such a grievous penalty for Moses for what seems like such an insignificant act? He struck the rock twice, and he's barred from Canaan? Even one seemingly insignificant, though not really, sin, because of that one insignificant, though not really, sin, no one deserves to enter the land. Not even Moses, the great leader, mediator, and prophet that anyone in this generation of Israelites spoken to in Deuteronomy 
is given the privilege of entering into the promised land, that any of us are given the privilege of entering into the eternal city of God by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the pure, unmerited grace of God. Moses continued in Deuteronomy 3, The Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah, lift up your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. There are a number of spiritual applications that can and have been made about these events, but I'm only going to speak to one. That Moses, who in many instances represents the law of God, reveals to you and I, to every single one of us, the seriousness of sin. And also reveals to every single one of us the precise holiness of God with regard to his will and his command. If Moses, the most humble, meek, and obedient man in all of the Old Testament, was a man under the law who failed at one point and was guilty of all of it, therefore, and not able to enter into the promised land, what hope does that leave anybody? If Moses can't live up to the law, the perfect law of God, nobody can. He's a reminder of the law's inability to save anyone, the law's inability or powerlessness to conduct anyone into the promised land. For us, the spiritual application for us would be the promised land is a picture of heaven. Not one of us can be forgiven of our sin or acceptable in the sight of a holy God by being good. Every one of us will fail. If you think, you know what, when I die and I walk into the heavenlies and God says, why should I let you into the heavens? Why should I let you in to enjoy eternal life? I'm just going to tell him, I was good. I helped my neighbor walk her garbage. Uh, I, helped, uh, I held her hand as she walked across the street. I did a bunch of good things. And the Lord will say, did you ever lie? And all of us here would say, yeah, then you weren't good. The entire weight of the law is about to come down upon you. The only answer, the only answer that carries any Wait for your eternity is. Did you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we all fail to live up to the perfect standard of God and left to ourselves, every single one of us would find ourselves left outside the eternal city of God in the darkness where there is nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. What we need is what God provided for Israel, a Joshua one who prefigures here, who points to a deliverer other than Moses, one who can conduct the people into the promised land of eternal life. And we know on this side of the cross who that Joshua is, don't we? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior and our great deliverer. He is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect intercessor, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. He is the one Moses said that God would raise up in the future to blaze the path to eternal life. 
And everyone who would desire to live with God in eternal joy, everyone who would not fail to make it to Canaan or to eternal life with him, must turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Must place trust in him. And when you do, I want you to know this. At the cross where Jesus died, he took upon himself every single sin that you've ever committed, every single sin that you will ever commit. He bore it in himself on the cross, and the Father shot his wrath out on Jesus. And we also know that Christ lived a perfect sinless life. And so when you turn to Jesus in faith, your sin is placed on Christ, and Christ's righteousness is placed on you. So God looks at Jesus as though he lived your life, and he looks at you as though you live Christ's. Amen! That only comes to you by grace through faith in Jesus. Every failure to uphold God as holy is forgiven in Christ. Every breach of faith, every moment that you buckle under the pressure of sin, Christ has dealt with all of it in his children. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus at this moment, there is coming a day, should you die in that position, when you will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will not enjoy the wonderful, glorious joy of being with God forever, but you will be the recipient of his awful wrath for eternity. But you can... Should you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, have it all forgiven. And should you turn to Jesus, have your sin forgiven, he will bring you to eternal life. You will not find yourself on the outside of the promised land looking in, but you will find yourself smack dab in the middle of it, right before the throne of God, worshiping the great joy of your life. So in closing, you might think you're good, but you aren't as good or as patient as Moses was. I'm not as good or as patient as Moses was. None of us are. And he failed. Now, Moses is is in heaven, for sure, right? Don't press the analogy too far. But on the earthly scheme, he failed. Didn't make it into the land. As has every other single person, as every single other person in human history except Jesus, the perfect God-man. You can't make it to heaven without him. I can't without him. Believe in him who is the way and the truth and the life, apart from whom no one can come to the Father, but in whom are all the riches of eternal life and all the blessings of God ready to be poured out on you. Father, thank you for the warning that we receive from the life of Moses, your excellent servant, who is a model to each and every one of us of this one fact. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And if we fail at one point of your perfect holy law, we are guilty for the weight of all of it. Sin bars us from the promised land. 
but I thank you and we praise you. All of your children here praise you. The children here at Winona, the children in the Amazon, the children in Africa, the children in every single place in this world who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We all thank you that in Christ we are forgiven, that in Christ we have a room in the heavenly mansion, that we can be sure of the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ that he has gone to prepare a place for us and that he will return to take all who have believed in his name back to be with him where he is. And in that place, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more anxiety. None of those things will exist anymore. And oh, do we look forward to that day. And we praise you in his name. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.